Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Voters in Manitoba next Tuesday will be deciding on who will be leading the provincial government. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Richard Cloutier from our Chorus radio station, Chorus news station in uh, Winnipeg, CJOB, and from Global News Television in uh, Manitoba. Rich, great to have you with us. Uh, very active week leading to Tuesday's Manitoba provincial election. What are, what are the leading issues? Well... <laughs> At the beginning of this campaign, and still, um, health care coming out of a pandemic and the changes that were made in Manitoba over health care um, have been the issue that the New Democrats have been really uh, putting forward. Um, in the last two years, in the last year, throughout the campaign, uh, one of the things when he was Premier, Brian Pallister, who has since left, acted on a report that was... Uh, conscripted by the former NDP government to close and convert three suburban emergency rooms to urgent care centers. And Wab Canoe, the NDP leader, coming through a pandemic, has vowed that those three ERs would be reopened under uh, an NDP government in the years ahead. We have, like so many other provinces, so many countries, a shortage of health care workers. So He's got an asterisk on that promise saying that we're going to get it done, but not until we solve the health care crisis as far as workers and some of the other issues are concerned. The Progressive Conservatives and Heather Stephenson, she's the premier, a healthy majority going into this, um, spent the first um, or the last six months talking about health care, addictions issues, downtown Winnipeg issues, trying to neutralize those issues, and then came out of the gate with a lot of economic promises, cutting your taxes, um, growing the economy, growing the population in Manitoba, a very positive message. And then uh, mid- midway, uh, a poll came out showing that in vote-rich Winnipeg, New Democrats are, are healthily in front. And that's where this campaign has turned in the last week to 10 days, because uh, you have in Canoe the first First Nations Premier that could be elected on Tuesday, and Heather Stephenson, the Premier, the first women in Manitoba to get elected by the people of Manitoba uh, as Premiers. So history is in the making here, uh, and we can talk about what's happened over the last week uh, as far as this campaign going pretty negative. Yeah, I'm just curious about one thing. Uh, Mr. Canoe has some personal issues, personal history issues, that were part of previous election campaigns. Is that uh, is that an issue this time around? It, it, the, the, the progressive conservatives have always tried to make it an issue. It's not as much of an issue as it has been in the past. Canoe strategically came out uh, at the beginning of this campaign and uh, basically said, listen, um, I'm the poster child for second chances. That yes, I had some problems uh, in my youth. And uh, like anything else, it takes time for your image to rehabilitate, rehabilitate itself with voters. And I think that has happened in the last four or five years as he's been leader. Uh, it is an issue for some on the doorstep, not as much of an issue, but it was a very passionate speech basically saying he's going to get tough on crime. And it's one of the people like him that uh, they'd have to get tough with and that uh, he has and has dealt with his addictions issues. And like I said, he's a poster child for second chances. But having said that from the get go, um, part of the campaign has been targeted against Wab Canoe for that very vulnerability. We have about two minutes. What, what was been, what's been the, uh, the big issue of the last week? It, it has been, and we've had the issue as far as Indigenous relations are concerned, and we've had some very, very high-profile murders. We had, uh, and a man has been charged with a serial killing involving um, Indigenous women, and two of them, they believe, um, their bodies are in a landfill to the north of the city of Winnipeg. And a report came out basically saying it would cost in a range of some $80 million to almost $200 million to do that dig. And uh, while rejecting it earlier in the summer, 
the progressive conservatives have done their polling and their path to victory can be found through saying no to that landfill. So they've used language like, you know, hold the line, uh, say no to this. It's been on billboards. It's been on uh, all sorts of social media. Um, I've talked to reasonable people that believe it's not money well spent and as a result may end up voting for the progressive conservatives. It may have the opposite effect that people that were otherwise going to stay home may go out to the polls. It's been divisive. Uh, The R word, the race issue has been talked about here. Uh, The progressive conservatives have been accused of using more conservative tactics that we've seen in other provinces and in the federal campaign. Um, All campaigns can get ugly. I like to use the football analogy that uh, on the gridiron, you've got referees, you've got flags for offside, for roughing. In the political uh, field, there's very few referees other than those at the ballot box and on election day. So this all makes me wonder, and this is a wild card in elections, particularly these days in this country, although my earlier question might just uh, put that, uh, put the light of that. But um, what about voter turnout in Manitoba? Is that going to play a part? Is that expected to play a part in the result? It sure can. 55% last time around, very robust advanced voting, but we know from other elections across the country just because you get a lot of people going in the advance poll doesn't necessarily mean on election day you're going to get more. Um, I'm hoping for above 60%. We'll see whether that happens or not. But there could be um, not just trying to get people to the polls here, but uh, to motivate people to stay home. And depending on those close ridings, especially in suburban Winnipeg, um, that could make or break the difference between a majority and minority government whether or not the PCs hang on or Bob Canoe and the NDP are elected to power on Tuesday. Police officers being killed on the job. That's happening so frequently in this country. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a national crisis. It really is. There's most recently the RCMP officer in British Columbia, Rick O'Brien. His funeral will be next Wednesday in Langley at the event center, and there'll be a procession before that. So if you're in the area, please try to uh, attend or pay respects to Officer O'Brien. I'm curious what our next guest is going to say about this. Former RCMP tactical team leader, Tim Mills is with us. He was the uh, RCMP ERT tactical team leader, April 18th of 2020, when 22 people were murdered including RCMP Constable Heidi Stevenson. Tim Mills was also present with the RCMP ERT team in Moncton, New Brunswick, during the mass shooting on June 4th, 2014, when three RCMP officers were killed and two more seriously wounded during 24-year-old Moncton resident Justin Burke's shooting and killing assault. Tim, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the program. I, 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 have, I have to express personal condolences to you because you spent so many years in uniform protecting the people of this country in the most dangerous of circumstances. Why, why is it police officers are increasingly being killed while on the job? And I'm thinking now of the OPP officer, Greg Pierce Challa, who last December was shot and killed when he stopped to try and help someone he spotted in, in the ditch in a car. What's going on in our society? Well, thanks for having me, Roy. Um, it's, there's way too many reasons to name them all, but to summarize what's going on, in my opinion, is I think it's no secret to anyone in Canada, if they're paying attention at all, we are living in what I say is a, a broken society, the most corrupt government we've ever been under. And, you know, when you have, and I'm not just not talking one side either, I'm not talking Trudeau, uh, you have one party there saying, propping him up, giving him the power. And also the official opposition, uh, conservatives, spineless over the last few years. So you have, to me, the most corrupt government in Canadian history, but also we as Canadians, we have to take responsibility as well. Like, you know, we're too busy with our lives, whether it be sports, Super Bowl Sunday, or, you know, what concert's on, you know, we're we're allowing them to do this. And, and, you know, it's just going to get worse 
um, you know, everything from policing, health care, education, you name it, everyone is suffering. I have a wife that's a guidance counselor, and, and the stories she tells me about work and that. I, I know nurses and, and the stories I hear in the health care. And here in Nova Scotia, emergency rooms are closed down all over the place. Uh, I keep in touch with police officers, and, and they're all running skeleton crews. It's just out of control. Um, drugs, you know, um, overdoses, mental health, everything is through the roof. So in the last seven years, and even more frequently the last three or four years, society has gone downhill so fast. The, the amount of homelessness in Halifax that I see with my own eyes. It's amazing. Tent cities popping up. It, it's all over Toronto, Vancouver. You hear it all over. There's there's no way a government that truly cares for its citizens and people would allow this to happen. There's just no way on earth. So this affects every part of society. And we're talking about police today. So when you allow crime to run rampant, you allow drugs, uh, you know, into our society, and and not have any penalties for it. I was surprised to learn in the last two years since I stopped being a police officer, they're now they're not prosecuting people if they have 30 grams or less of hard drugs on them. So back when I was getting out of the policing, it used to be 30 grams of, you know, marijuana. Well, now it's 30 grams of cocaine or 30 grams of meth. And, and I found that hard to believe where I had to call a drug investigator myself who was current and be like, is this true? I, I just find it hard to believe. And he confirmed it. He said, sad but true. They they had picked up a guy that had 57 grams of crack cocaine on him, and it got thrown out of court because they said it was personal use, and for federal prosecutors will no longer prosecute for personal use. So the criminals in the country, they're not, you know, they're not stupid. They pick up on this. They see the loopholes they can use. And so it gives them more power by by having all this in place. And basically, you know, they see they they can run the show now. And where police are at skeleton crews and overworked and burning out, it's it's you can see and we see it. We're we're slowly losing power and it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. So I can take you back if you don't mind my doing this. To uh, it's gotten very hard, I'm sure for you, hard for everybody to think about it. But you were there. You were you were leading the ERT, the RCMP ERT, technically unit on April 18th in 2020 in Nova Scotia, where 22 people were murdered. And you discovered, if I remember our conversation, our first conversation about this correctly, you're the officer who discovered RCMP Constable Heidi Stevenson in her cruiser, who had been shot and killed. Um, and, and, and Tim, uh, you were, you were telling me and told us on the air about the lack of support that you had as a police unit, trying to come to grips with what was going on. You didn't have a helicopter. They never seemed to be able to fly. You didn't have the support from the senior officers, as uh, what you shared with us. Can you just remind us how chaotic that night was and what effect that had on you? Well, it's never easy seeing, you know, anyone hurt or killed. It's it's a, a sickening feeling, but it depends on the person. It depends on when it occurs. You know, when we discovered my good friend Heidi uh, had passed, we were in the heat of battle. So you have to keep going to find that bad fall. I'm sure if you discover, you know, a fellow officer down or, or someone else after, you know, the battle is over, it would be harder to cope with. Uh, but it's always terrible. And, and, you know, to go about what you said with the confusion and everything, with what I've said in my testimony, what I said at the Mass Casualty Commission, for as long as I was an ERT member for 22 years, um, time and time again, whether it be Mayathorpe, Alberta, or Manitoba, or the New Brunswick, they would always have these inquiries or whatever name they wanted to call it. And the same deficiencies would always be brought up. And it would never get fixed. They would fix a couple things, put a Band-Aid on it, and put you back out. And just, you know, because it became old news, and, and they would move on to the next thing. And so 
as I said in my testimony at the Mass Casualty Commission, it is lip service for the public to think so so they can think, well, we care. They don't care. They just want this to get over with and just move on. They, you know, it's it's all about make it go away so we don't get judged and let things continue on. Like with the RCMP now, they're at skeleton crews. The Halifax Regional Police are at skeleton crews. So these members are burning out. They're working at skeleton crews. I follow a member from uh, Toronto Metro. He's a sergeant. And just last week, he was posting about how backlogged they are on, like, priority two calls, which are serious calls. And he's saying they're in the queue and they can't get to them. And it's just, this is all over Canada, just not RCMP or the East Coast. You um, you shared with me, and we're talking about policing in this country and what we need to protect our officers more. And uh, Tim Mills is my guest. He was an ERT um, technical leader in Nova Scotia on April 18, 2020. Also present in Moncton in 2014 when three officers, RCMP officers, were killed. Two more were wounded. You told me, uh, Tim, if I remember correctly, there was very little in the way of support from senior officers for your ERT crew after the April 18th, 2020 night. And some of your members were part-time. Uh, some were full-time ERT members. Some were part-time. And they needed some time off, and it wasn't given. And I, I still remember that, and I thought, where this is a, this is a building block in the lack of support that police officers are receiving, and I'm hearing it from you. I've heard it from other officers. Could you remind us about that? Yes. Just to touch on, I last mentioned about the Toronto uh, police officer mm -hmm. that I follow and in the, you know, how backed up they are. Mm -hmm. He just posted also, he's, he's involved with Wounded Warriors of Canada, and he just posted, there's stats out there that talk about police officers, and they call it sanctuary uh, trauma and over seventy percent suffer from it. What is that? What that is, it, sanctuary trauma is when, and it's exactly what we went through as an earth team here. You go out and you fight the battle. You you do you the best you can with what you have, and when you come back and you're looking for support from your organization, then you don't get that support. And what we went through was the total opposite. We actually came back and we had to fighter management for not even time off, just time away from frontline policing for six members. And it that's why I ultimately left the force. It was a fight for six months. It's under investigation right now, and I just recently got back kind of a summary of what officers are saying, and it came as no surprise to me, but how conveniently they forget, how they point the finger at each other's, how they actually lie. And it, it comes as a shock, but you expect it as well. And it's what I said two years ago. They get into the rank upper management, and it all becomes about me, 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 and my pension and how high I can go. And I mentioned power corruption and all that. It's, you can tell they're there, they're afraid to make decisions, and they don't want to rock the boat. They just want to make it through with a high pension retirement. And I seen it fighting two years ago against it, trying to get time, not off, but time away, working um, with the unit. And they fought us tooth and nail. And even here we are two years later, and when interviews were done and statements taken, they're covering their behinds because of it. And it just, you shake your head when you read it, because the truth always comes out. The truth never changes. And it's just, when you see it, it's like, wow, yeah, there it is, you know, in black and white ink. Tim, uh, how do police officers go about doing their jobs across this country with the assaults, the shootings, the deaths, and what you've shared with us? What is it that makes an officer get up every morning and do his or her job? What is it? Well, police officers join the job to, to help their fellow citizen. They they get in it because they want to make a difference. 
that's that's what drives them. But it's getting tougher and tougher. Um, they don't want to let their fellow officer down as well. But as I said earlier, with skeleton crews and, and people burning out, it you know physical health and mental health does take over, and that desire to help and and you know be there beside your fellow man and woman that you know it takes a toll. Hmm. Um, as I talked about skeleton crews and, and lack of trust with management, uh, you know they they go in. It's a grind for them. It's getting tougher and tougher. That's for sure. Uh, most officers I speak to now, our CMP used to go 32 years minimum to 35. Everyone I talk to now, they just want to do their minimum, 24 in a day, 25, get out. That's what they want to do. They they see the handwriting on the wall. So we are losing tons of police officers. Recruiting is at an all-time low all over. I was in Charlottetown PEI Labor Day weekend and seen our CMP advertising on the side of Metro buses. First time I've ever seen advertising on buses for recruiting. So it shows you how tough it is and, and the struggle they have trying to get police officers. It, it's becoming more of a hateful job, uh, a less thankful job, a tougher job. You're under a microscope. With today's society and what's been preached in the last three years to fund the police and, and you know, all this wokeness of, oh, the, the thin blue line has to be taken off your uniform because it's uh, offending to some, you know, that just wears on, on officers. Mm-hmm. They just want to be there to help make a difference. And every little thing that goes on like this, it just adds to the burden. Thank you again, Tim, for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate talking to you. Did last time, do now. You mentioned you, you mentioned the Mass Casualty Commission, so I went back during our break just now and looked at some of the notes from a conversation we had about that Mass Casualty Commission, you and I, on this program. And uh, it came up that RCMP Chief Superintendent Chris Leather, he, he testified that federal lawyers advised him to not speak about a call he received from the commissioner about the issue of publicly disclosing what types of firearms Wardman used. And then there was another point, and they're not necessarily immediately tied together, but I, they, they, are, they do tie together. It, Justice, the Justice Department withheld pages of notes for months from Inspector Darren Campbell, and the opposition parties were saying this was done because the notes' contents would be detrimental to the federal government. It's alarming if the inquiry into the mass murders of 22 people in Nova Scotia has to subpoena the federal government for information that should have been made available to the inquiry in day one. Um, I'm just I'm just presenting this to you. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, when I first talk about corrupt government, I know some people out there are like, oh, it can't be corrupt, it's incompetence, or, you know, it's not that bad. And I used to think that way myself as well until I started doing a bit of research and connecting dots and lived through what I lived through. And it's, I have zero doubt there is corruption in the government and in the upper management of the RCMP, zero doubt. When what you just touched on there, that all come out after we spoke last. And when, and I called Brenda Lucky at the time, a puppet of Trudeau, which I truly believe she was. The gentleman in charge now of the RCMP, I don't even know his name offhand, but before he became commissioner, and he's appointed, you know, by Trudeau and whatever committee up there, he was in charge of federal policing in Ottawa and some other big thing in Ottawa, but everyone he was in charge of would have been the ones that investigated Trudeau and any corruption in the government. So then you wonder. And I'm sure a lot of Canadians are thinking, well, how come he's never been charged? How come it, you know, Teflon Trudeau? How come nothing sticks to him? This would be the reason why. I personally know a private investigator, and he had 30 years in law enforcement. He did his own investigation, did his research, submitted a complaint to Ottawa on Trudeau, and I believe it had something to do way back. 
Yes. Okay. We, we have to be, Tim, Tim, we have to be careful about allegations, right? You know that. You're a cop. I know that. But what I'm saying is when, when they're given an investigation and please, you know, investigate this and this goes nowhere and he is told the PMO's office reached out and said, we can't investigate this. So what I'm saying is it's obvious there is something wrong. And when nothing gets investigated, this is why everyone really, you know, wonders, like, why doesn't anything stick? Why hasn't he been charged? So there's one thing I come to the conclusion. Yeah, I hear you. Mike Duham is the uh, commissioner of the RCMP now. Yes. Yeah. And so, I did my research on what he was in charge with before he got it. When you were, um, when you were involved, and I, I don't want to, I hope I'm not causing you any distress by asking you these questions. No. Because you were, you were at you were the tip of the spear, um, the sharp end of the stick when you were a police officer, the emergency re response team. Effectively in the United States, what they call SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. Um, so you're the, you're, you've got that job in Nova Scotia, April 18, 2020. You've got that job uh, in Moncton in 2014. What is that like to do that work? You're in charge of people who are an, an entire unit of fellow officers emergency response team officers, you're trying to get the job done. And I remember you telling us how difficult it was in Nova Scotia. What is it like to get try to get the job done? And do you, in those circumstances, on those nights or those days, when you're doing the job, at the very tip of the, 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 the spear or the stick, do you encounter what you know are unnecessary obstacles. Are there obstacles in your path to you getting your job done? Resources would be the first one right offhand. Yes, resources. Uh, we, we've always worked below numbers, what was recommended. Um, equipment would be another one where you'd identify we need this, we need that, you know, for health and safety reasons, officer safety reasons, and it would boil down to we don't have the money for it. So resources, equipment would be the obstacles that would most, you know, come into play. Um, and that would be the two that stick out the most. There would be nothing else I could think of uh, right offhand, you know, to, to speak of. How are, you, how are you doing after leaving and going through so, as much as you have, experiencing as much as you have? Is there support for you? If you, if you're, I'm not saying you need it, but if you need it, would, would there be support for you? Yes. I mean, I have great family support. I have good friend support. Um, you know, ex-officers I used to work with and retired officers, we all support each other. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. Um, you know, with today's society, with everything going on, you know, you do have to shake your head and wonder yeah when's when's everything going to change but no i'm doing well uh thanks for asking um and yeah it's because i like you because uh, i've gotten to know you i've gotten to know you a little bit over the last couple of years we've gotten to know each other yeah uh, i i would say i'm probably doing better than the majority of canadians right now believe it or not uh you know i've i've come to terms with what went on and uh, why it went on. And once you accept, you know, why it happened, it's a lot easier to cope with. And you're not as confused or, or wonder these things. So, yeah, I, I just, I want to thank you personally as one Canadian to another, but I'm sure I'm speaking for many for what you did for all of us and the work that you did putting your life and yourself on the line so many times. And uh, we, do, we do have to say and do want to say thank you, Tim, to you and your fellow officers. And thanks so very much for, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Roy, and you take care. 
I know this is going to, well, it's not going to delight, but it's going to really resonate with my next three, not really guests, they're my friends. And one in particular is going to just tie yourself down, Linda, okay? Linda? Okay. Tie yourself down. (laughs) (laughs) Equifax Canada reveals that credit card balances in Canada have hit $107.4 billion in the second quarter. And that total, did you just fall over? And total Canadian consumer debt reached $2.4 trillion during the second quarter. That's in a country of 38 million people. A lot of them are kids who don't have credit cards. Hang on. It's time, of course, for Beauties and the Beast. Linda Latherdale, Vice President, Cambria, Canada, former money editor of the Toronto Sun. Linda and I embarked on many a mission to uh, rescue mission, and we were pretty successful at it. Catherine Swift, President of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada, past President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, formerly named Canada's most, most powerful woman, certainly has the most powerful voice. In Canada, she just blew a five, not just now, but she blew a $5,000 microphone to pieces. <laughs> I'm never going to be allowed to no, forget no, no, that, no, am I, really? no, no. They wanted me to. They wanted me to send you an invoice. I never told you that. <laughs> I said, she has to pay half. I said, you go tell her that. I'm not. <laughs> I don't have that kind of courage in reserve, man. I'm not going anywhere near that. And Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and seat mate to Justin Trudeau during question period. You should be on Survivor Series. <laughs> Absolutely. I made all this stuff up as I was going along. Pretty good, eh? Hey, I said it was pretty good, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. They're just, you're a tough crowd. What a tough room. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. How are you doing? Great. How are Great. you, Roy? Thanks. I'm I'm okay. Good. You sound wonderful. Thank Your whole you. show so far is tremendous. Thank you. I'll send the check in the morning. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's start, and we can weave this whole issue of Canadians' debt, our national debt, where we are fiscally, financially. You're all three involved. All three have been involved and still are involved with financial issues. Um why don't we start with the carbon tax, and let's go with the different approaches by Trudeau and Polyev. You just heard uh, Mr. Polyev tell me earlier what his plans are. Carbon, we know he says ax the tax, and when I asked him, would you replace it with another tax with a different name? Absolutely not. Who wants to go first? I'll jump in. Sure. Um, I, I ha- it just so happens I've seen Polyev about three times in the last three and a half weeks, <laughs> just just fluky. I was at the um, uh, Conservative Party conference in uh, Quebec City, and I was at a special event this week for women, interesting enough, with Poiliev, and, uh, and I hap- he happened to visit one of my members uh, back about three and a half weeks ago. So, um, And we've talked about, I've talked about this issue with him. And I'm, I'm, we know the carbon tax has not worked, and there's, oh gosh, we could speak for ages about why it hasn't worked, uh, but it hasn't. We still, we, we recently saw emissions continue to increase in Canada. So clearly, it's not the kind of thing that works in Canada. The other, the, the real problem is that Trudeau, the Trudeau government, piled the carbon tax on top of a whole bunch of other regulations, emissions caps, and they're talking about even more. And of course, we saw the um, the so-called clean fuel standard introduced in mid-year, which is like a second carbon tax. And even those who, who say that, you know, carbon taxes can work, they're, they're nothing like how they've been applied in Canada. You're supposed to impose the carbon tax, but give people the equivalent reduction in income taxes. Not send them little checks in the mail for, you know, 150 bucks or whatever, but actually reduce their income taxes. That's not what the Trudeau government's done. So we're seeing it not work. What what Poitiev is proposing um, is is uh, very much that of the, the, the approach of Bjorn Lomberg, who I know you've had on your show a number of times, Roy, which is adaptation, technology. We in Canada are very, very good at reducing emissions from our oil and gas sector. Uh, we're also quite good at nuclear technology in Canada. All of these things uh, bear much more promise 
to actually have a substantial impact on the environment and not punish average Canadians, especially low- and middle-income Canadians. Mm-hmm. So I think Polyev's got a really good case to make. Okay, Ms. Leatherdale, why don't we go to you next, and I know you'll want to weave in the uh, well, $2.4 trillion debt Canadians are carrying. Oh, my God, goodness. Well, and, and let's just go back to the carbon tax. Yeah. Catherine is so right about it doesn't work. AXA tax, I'm a little bit um, hesitant because I heard that before over the GST. And remember, our friend John mm-hmm. Nutsiata was mm-hmm. the only guy to quit when right. they didn't ax the tax. They so, kicked him out because he wouldn't kicked, support it. I just saw John and he wanted me to say hi to you. Oh. Is that an event? Yes. <laughs> but in any event, let's go back. I hope Pierre Palavdit will 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 do it. I, I it has to happen. Look at this: thirty two percent of what we pay at the pump is already pure tax. He Catherine's right. He added it to fuel, so that by twenty thirty, the average family is going to be paying two thousand three hundred more. And we worry about inflation, and we worry about Canadians' indebtedness. This is hurting us, Roy. So ax the tax, absolutely. So sometimes I think. Um, sorry, go ahead, Linda. Well, and and just to our whole, we are a nation of indebtors now, not only our government, which means higher taxes, but our consumers. And with these higher interest rates, I mean, we can talk about housing, but Roy, this is a dire situation. And I heard you about the United States and the debt ceiling. We're there too, Roy. We're there too. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, seatmate to to Justin. Do you want me to keep saying that? Uh, Well... Oh, just the first part? It's not a badge of pride. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's... uh, It's the truth. Yeah, it's a fact. It's a fact. You sound so enthusiastic. What about the carbon tax? And uh, you know Mr. Trudeau well. If he's he's staring into the jaws of electoral defeat, do you think he could find himself saying to Canadians, okay, okay, I get it. You don't like the carbon tax. I'm either suspending it or I'm kicking it to the curb. And if that costs Gilbo, it causes him to leave, then so be it. Could you see him doing that? Actually, I do. Really? At some point, yes, I do. Because it'll be a point of desperation. Because Hmm. the liberals are so far down in the polls Mm -hmm. that... Uh, Justin Trudeau has the ability to uh, actually exceed uh, Michael Ignatius' destruction of the Liberal Party. And he did a great job, Ignatius. Oh, yeah, right. No, I mean, destroying the party. You had the party oh, yeah, had like no, 30. 30- destroying the party? Yeah. Yes. He has overstayed his welcome. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he, do you think, do you know, no idea. Do, you, do you think he knows that? Um, maybe on some level, but I don't think he wants to admit it to himself. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Michelle, about the carbon tax? About the carbon tax? Yeah. It's been a failure, without doubt. I'm not convinced that Polyev has the answer, and I'm not, I don't. I would not provide an answer for that, but I will say the carbon tax has been a dismal failure, and the timing of it was exceptionally bad. Yeah. Do you know the fact that we're still talking constantly about the carbon tax, and this has been, it's been in place for several years now, the fact that we continue to talk about it daily, it's part of the national conversation you know, you pour a coffee. As you're pouring the coffee, you're talking carbon tax. Before your eyes close at the end of the night, you say carbon tax. Um, the fact that it's still part of the national conversation after this period of time tells you it's but, a failure. But you can trade. The fact that you can trade off in itself is bogus. You know, uh, companies can trade off. This one can emit more, and the one that it, it really is a shell game as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the housing crisis in Canada, and in tandem with that, is the news that 6.9 million Canadians face food insecurity. 6.9 million Canadians. Within that number, 1.8 million Canadian kids face insecurity, i.e. hunger. How do we put all this together? Catherine, how do you approach 
the housing crisis in Canada? Well, it's a big mess that's been, it's been brewing for a number of years. This, this isn't just sort of suddenly happened overnight. And uh, actually, Jack Mintz had a really good article in Friday's National Post on this issue um, about how it has been totally driven by government policy. And he talks about government policies like rent controls. Rent controls are infamous for, short, for creating shortages of rental housing. There's uh, tons of work that's been done on it over the years, and it's always a disaster. It's one of those sort of feel-good policies. Oh, yeah, let's get, stick it to those landlords, only let them increase rents by, you know, some minuscule amount every year. And, of course, they don't upgrade their property. And they're not idiots. They don't upgrade their properties. They don't build, people don't build new rental units, et cetera. Things like bylaws uh, in, in various municipalities. Every, every government needs to take responsibility Every level of government needs to take responsibility for our current housing shortages. But one thing that the Trudeau government has done is on immigration. And, of course, the lefties like to say, oh, oh, if you even talk about immigration, well, you must be a racist, which is, of course, absurd. But when we're doubling immigration and we already have a housing, uh, have major housing problems, a lot of these poor people, I mean, it's so unfair to people coming into this country. A lot of them are coming in as refugees, so they don't have a lot of resources. They're the ones that are ending up on the street, as, as, you, you, know, as you say, Roy. And it, this is so un, unbelievably wrong in all respects. It's great Canada, a country of immigrants. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a daughter of immigrants. I mean, you know, nobody's saying we shouldn't have immigration. But to open the taps like this when we already have serious housing shortages is just bad for everybody. And the Liberal government has also liked to do things like, oh, we're going to give new home buyers, you know, young home buyers their first home. We're going to give you some tax breaks and so on. What does that do? Drive up the cost of housing even more. So people clearly don't understand, it seems, what, it, what is behind the price, the ridiculous price increases and the shortages, because the two are very linked, naturally. When you have yeah. shortage, you drive up the prices. Yeah. The no government to date has said, and I did hear your interview with Paliev earlier, and I think his ideas have some potential, but um, it, no government to date has reversed these policies that have caused the problems over a number of years. You can't okay. blame any one government for this. Uh, Linda, your sense, your thoughts, housing crisis. Well, again, Catherine is so right. I remember, Roy, way back, everybody said, oh, Canada, real estate prices, cheap, cheap, cheap. And, uh, you know, great place to be. And then everybody could afford a home. Now, today, we are the third and fifth most expensive in the world. And this is nuts. And I fought for some of these programs, like the Home Buyers Plan, Borough Against Your RRSP, to get into it. I believed in the white picket fence. I believe that our children should have that opportunity. And Catherine's right, on immigration, we open up the floodgates and we don't, it's supply and demand. But I think Pierre did hit on some things. We have lots of land. Here's what I say, let's go back to if immigration comes here, let's say you have to go to a less populated area, but let's go to municipalities. They have the infrastructure in place and then we create more jobs and cheaper housing. He talked about, and you're right, Catherine, these rent controls, there's a whole pile of levers that we can pull, but CMHC helping to get more apartment buildings built. The bottom line here is that real estate has been a cornerstone of the Canadian economy and it is a dream of everybody. I think we all have to put on our thinking caps and let's get this done. Higher interest rates are hurting our young people to even get into the housing market. It's making it more expensive. Yep. So I think, I don't know who's going to form the next government. And I got to say, Roy, I listened to your question. Who do you want to win? Well, everybody's cynical because it doesn't matter if it's a conservative liberal. As soon as they get into power, there's corruption. Okay. So let's end that. And let's start thinking about our children and the future. Michelle, you're going to wrap it up for us. Cry housing crisis. Well, I agree with Catherine that rent controls have absolutely decimated that area of housing. And I do think the fact that a lot of people believe that interest rates were going to remain, quite frankly, artificially low for mortgages. And that is going to come back to bite us in the butt. I do think that there is something we should be looking at something like uh, more cooperative housing. I was once lobbied by uh, the cooperative 
Housing Federation, and that would that encompasses low-income families. There's pride of ownership, and I had two uh, cooperatives in my riding, and it really worked well. I think we have to start thinking a little bit outside the box. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I don't know why I did this, but I went online a couple of weeks ago. People criticized me for it. But uh, the average house price in Niagara Falls, Ontario, is around $760,000. The average house price in Niagara Falls, New York, 150000 Unbelievable. It doesn't have Do you not think way. that the That's artificially right. low mortgage rates that have been around have helped escalate the pricing? Yeah. But, but Michelle, but I want to add one thing, Roy, too. money laundering and, in the real estate market. they didn't builders and developers as we have here in Canada with, with zoning weirdness and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you know, Michelle, You're, from what you said about low interest rates, our Bank of Canada governor and our f- current finance minister both said these are going to last for a very long time. Beauties. They didn't. Have to go. <laughs> no. You're right. Thank you. Well, we're going to do this again real soon. Thank you so much, Catherine, Linda, and Michelle. Thanks. Thank you, Roy. Enjoy the week. Thanks, Roy. Voters in Manitoba next Tuesday will be deciding on who will be leading the provincial government. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Richard Cloutier from our Chorus radio station, Chorus news station in uh, Winnipeg, CJOB, and from Global News Television in uh, Manitoba. Rich, great to have you with us. A uh, very active week leading to Tuesday's Manitoba provincial election. What are, what are the leading issues? Well, at the beginning of this campaign, and still, um, health care coming out of a pandemic and the changes that were made in Manitoba over health care um, have been the issue that the New Democrats have been really uh, putting forward. Um, in the last two years, in the last year, throughout the campaign. Uh, one of the things when he was Premier, Brian Pallister, who has since left, acted on a report that was uh, conscripted by the former NDP government to close and convert three suburban emergency rooms to urgent care centres. And Wab Canoe, the NDP leader, coming through a pandemic, has vowed that those three ERs would be reopened under uh, an NDP government in the years ahead. We have, like so many other provinces, so many countries, a shortage of health care workers. So he's got an asterisk on that promise saying that we're going to get it done, but not until we solve the health care crisis as far as workers and some of the other issues are concerned. The Progressive Conservatives and Heather Stephenson, she's the premier, a healthy majority going into this, um, spent the first... Um, for the last six months, talking about health care, addictions issues, downtown Winnipeg issues, trying to neutralize those issues, and then came out of the gate with a lot of economic promises, cutting your taxes, um, growing the economy, growing the population in Manitoba, a very positive message. And then uh, mid- midway, uh, a poll came out showing that in vote-rich Winnipeg, New Democrats are, are healthily in front. And that's where this campaign has turned in the last week to 10 days, because uh, you have in Wabkanoo the first First Nations premier that could be elected on Tuesday, and Heather Stephenson, the premier, the first women in Manitoba to get elected by the people of Manitoba uh, as premiers. So history is in the making here, uh, and we can talk about what's happened over the last week uh, as far as this campaign going pretty negative. Yeah, I'm just curious about one thing. Uh, Mr. Canoe has some personal issues, personal history issues, that were part of previous election campaigns. Is that uh, is that an issue this time around? It, it, the, the, the progressive conservatives have always tried to make it an issue. It's not as much of an issue as it has been in the past. Canoe strategically came out uh, at the beginning of this campaign and uh, basically said, listen, um, I'm the poster child for second chances. That yes, I had some problems uh, in my youth. And uh, like anything else, it takes time for your image to rehabilitate, rehabilitate itself with voters. And I think that has happened in the last four or five years as he's been leader. Uh, 
it is an issue for some on the doorstep, not as much of an issue, but it was a very passionate speech, basically saying he's going to get tough on crime. And it's one of the people like him that uh, they'd have to get tough with and that uh, he had and has dealt with his addictions issues. And like I said, he's a poster child for second chances. But having said that from the get go, um, part of the campaign has been targeted against Wab Canoe for that very vulnerability. We have about two minutes. What, what was been, what's been the, uh, the big issue of the last week? It has been, and we've had the issue as far as Indigenous relations are concerned, and we've had some very, very high-profile murders. We had, uh, and a man has been charged with a serial killing involving um, Indigenous women, and two of them, they believe, um, their bodies are in a landfill to the north of the city of Winnipeg. And a report came out basically saying it would cost in a range of some $80 million to almost $200 million to do that dig. And uh, while rejecting it earlier in the summer, the progressive conservatives have done their polling and their path to victory can be found through saying no to that landfill. So they've used language like, you know, hold the line, uh, say no to this. It's been on billboards. It's been on uh, all sorts of social media. Um I've talked to reasonable people that believe it's not money well spent and as a result may end up voting for the progressive conservatives. It may have the opposite effect that people that were otherwise going to stay home may go out to the polls. It's been divisive. Uh, the R word, the race issue has been talked about here. Uh, the progressive conservatives have been accused of using more conservative tactics that we've seen in other provinces and in the federal campaign. Um, all campaigns can get ugly. I like to use the football analogy that uh, on the gridiron, you've got referees, you've got flags for offside, for roughing. In the political uh, field, there's very few referees other than those at the ballot box and on election day. So this all makes me wonder, and this is a wild card in elections, particularly these days in this country, although my earlier question might just uh, put, that, uh, put the light of that. But um, what about voter turnout in Manitoba? Is that going to play a part? Is that expected to play a part in the result? It sure can. 55% last time around. Very robust advanced voting. But we know from other elections across the country, just because you get a lot of people going in the advance poll doesn't necessarily mean on election day you're going to get more. Um, I'm hoping for above 60%. We'll see whether that happens or not. But there could be um, not just trying to get people to the polls here, but uh, to motivate people to stay home. And depending on those close ridings, especially in suburban Winnipeg, um, that could make or break the difference between a majority and minority government, whether or not the PCs hang on, or Bob Canoe and the NDP are elected to power on Tuesday. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.